Welcome to CAA Conversations. I'm Lauren Wordy speaking with Eric Hibbett today. We're going to talk about the importance and nuances of thinking about and teaching color from its subjectivity to its history, materiality, science, and cultural relevance. Again, I'm Lauren Wordy. I'm a painter, curator, and adjunct instructor at Tyler School of Art and Architecture and University of the Arts in Philadelphia, where I teach a range of studio classes from foundations to painting. I just had my first solo exhibit, Painter's Table, at Gross McCleef Gallery in Philadelphia, and I'm handing it off to Eric for your introduction. Uh, hey, everyone. Uh, my name is Eric Hibbett. I'm a visual artist based in New York City. I teach uh, color theory uh, in the continuing education department at Cooper Union. Uh, I also teach studio art at Suffolk County Community College and the 92nd Street Y. And I exhibit my work in New York City at Morgan Lehman Gallery. I recently had a uh, solo show at Hexham Gallery in Montpelier, Vermont. Nice. Well, thank you for, for joining me, Eric. The first question I wanted to ask as a bit of an icebreaker is how and when do you remember first falling in love with color? Uh, well, <laughs> when I was a kid, I, a little kid, like maybe like, you know, toddler or something, I came across a calendar that had birthstones on it. And of course, birthstones are known for you know, to be you know, very distinctly different colors, you know, month by month. And, uh, you know, was, would draw those and color them in. And I memorized, you know, what colors go with what month. And I think like the systematic quality of it fascinated me along with, you know, just the shapes of the gemstones too, and all their like beveled edges and of course the color. So I think uh, that was an early um, entry point for color for me. I remember having this ridiculous rainbow crayon as a kid. It had all of the colors and they were all sort of melted into one brick of, of rainbow. So you could draw with all of the colors at the same time, which I was so fascinated with. And then I got really into color when I started painting my nails. <laughs> so I was the kid that would do every single nail a different color, get the whole you know, chromatic pinks going on or try polka dots or layering glitter. And it's just, I've just loved color <laughs> ever since. Yeah. Um, so did you have any, like, after that, did you have any, like, adolescent or, like, teen experiences with color? Or, like, what were your later experiences Ooh, with color? Good question. I don't know. I mean, I really just grew up essentially just coloring casually with my grandfather who always wanted to be an artist so him and I would make all kinds of crazy stuff together you know from when I was very little up through high school and I think color was always just a part of that because it was it was so playful and and fun and do you feel like as a as a as a younger artist were you like very passionate about color hmm hard to say I think I was so into the materiality of it all like painting was always it for me so having the the sort of stuff that made the color was really exciting mm -hmm. what about you oh uh, yeah I mean I guess like when I like left the world of toys or whatever which is such a colorful world when you're like you know I don't know whatever 10 11 and you kind of outgrow those colorful really colorful things. I think then like in the, I guess I think of my teenage years as being like less colorful because I was, didn't have, yeah, as many kind of 
kid colors around me. But I remember being, you know, really into like very seduced by color as a, you know, foundations year of art school, you know, being very seduced by color with like learning the Albers thing in 2D design and then, you know, oil painting or what, you know, learning about just the, the array of colors, what you could do with them. So I, I, remember, I remember being into it, you know, very like as a young, very young artist. <laughs> I never got to have an Albers class. I, I had um, Stanley Whitney for my first painting class and for a color class. And that there was so much about his excitement about color and his ideas that I, I had to learn about Albers after college. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I've always wanted to have one of those really strict Albers exercise classes. <laughs> Right, right, right. Well, maybe to keep jumping into our subject here, and clearly color is such a joyful medium to work with. It's full of surprises and very, I already said, playful. So what kind of connection do you have to color and pleasure personally? Well, it's oftentimes like the color of a thing, like whether it be an artwork or an object or, you know, anything it's oftentimes the color that really can draw me into you know the experience of a thing you know and I notice a lot of colors in the world cars you know clothing whatever and I do think that's like an intensely like pleasurable experience to just kind of behold color and I'm definitely yeah a color file in that sense uh but I I think um in, in my own in my own painting practice, I think that color for me is pleasurable when it becomes part of a a whole color array, right? Kind of when there's uh, relationships and nuances between colors. So in my work, I might, you know, have uh, a range of in a in a painting. I might have like a range of greens, right? Uh, from like a blue greens to you know kind of true greens to like yellow greens, and uh, it's kind of that set of greens and how they work together in a specific painting uh, that might kind of get my color excitement going. Yeah, it's kind of rooted. I think my the the, the particular pleasure that I take in color in my work is uh, certainly colors themselves, but also the relationships between different colors. And, um, you know, I love moments of like extremely intense color contrast, but I also love uh, subtlety as well. So kind of feel like, you know, playing with all those different uh, possibilities, I think is kind of a a pleasure center for me, let's just say. (laughs) What about you? I think it's such an exciting place to make. When when I get to paint, I don't really think about, say, a color theory or color scheme before I start working. It's such a responsive experience. And so going from having a lot of, say, a rusty orange into the zing of a limey kind of yellow can get really exciting. And I, I think it's just this this back and forth of that experience while working for me. So also it, for you as well, it's, it's, you just mentioned two colors, rusty orange and limey green. Those are two colors that in my brain, I'm like, oh, intro- those, 
aren't, I don't, I don't know if I would say those are beautiful together, but maybe they're interesting together, right? So uh, it sounds like for you also, the, the, it's not just those colors themselves, it's how they work together in a context that's really exciting for you. Sure. And I mean, even thinking about the quantity of one color to another. So what whatever beauty is or attractiveness is could could shift with the same colors depending on what's around them or how much of them there is. I mean, even thinking about those kinds of words for color, color is really its own kind of language. Um, we experience working with color. Color is its own kind of language. I, I think it can be similar to music or sound. We think of similar words that we use for it, like rhythm, tone, loudness or quiet, something that can change our mood. Or even like I was just saying, a rusty orange or a like a lime green, stuff like that has feeling to it. Mm-hmm. What do you think about color and language, Eric? Well, uh, I think color is you know is very linked to language in our, in our minds, but I I think of color as a non-language experience that is uh you know comes maybe maybe before language and i you know i don't know if that's that that's my intuitive grasp of it right my intuitive grasp of it is i see uh an orange i see orange and then i understand my brain as putting a word to that and maybe in the brain those happen the the perception and the language happen at once i don't know but i have this intuitive thing that i feel like the language is is something that's added that that we add on to color and i think that that the language uh, the language defines how we see color and how we think about it yeah like for example i think uh if we say oh i i like the color maroon right you know, you might, and you say that phrase, you might have an idea of what maroon is, which actually might be quite different than a visual experience of that color that, that other people are having. Other people might, or other people might think about that color as a different color. So I I think that although we zone in on language and words to define color, I think it's actually a little bit imprecise or can be quite imprecise. Uh, depending on what language we're using. I also think that, you know, language uh, has a lot of authority in our culture and it it, it has a lot of uh, importance, right? And I think that uh, colors are oftentimes um, named in ways that are very elaborate, right? Like there's fancy words for colors, you know, the color chartreuse or uh, persimmon or cinnabar or all these kind of fancy color words. And I think that just because you know a word about you, you can call it something doesn't necessarily mean you really know what that color really is or how it could function in a context. You know, to really understand color, I think you have to kind of really um, kind of, I mean, I guess like move beyond language or think about it primarily as a visual experience. Mm-hmm. Sure. I mean, would you say that it starts with a kind of feeling when we're perceiving it then? 
Well, it's it's hard to talk about because you know how do you how do you talk about an experience that is a nonverbal experience? It's just it's if someone had never seen orange or experienced orange, how do you say that to them? What you know, maybe you could say, well, I perceive it as a warmth. I perceive it as feeling smooth. You might be creative with like. Um, analogies to other senses. It tastes like this, but even that might be so subjective and kind of hard to really communicate. Although it sounds like a fun experiment or a fun thing to try to do. (laughs) But yeah, I think that, you know, it's very much a primary experience that we then name. Yeah. I mean, I think that's so much of the, the magic of color and its use and even the experience of looking at art, being able to have have that individual feeling and response to that experience. And then what whatever you do with that beyond that, that is critically, or how does that change your worldview or perspective once you leave that artwork is so exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, well, maybe to move on to some form as function, since we've been discussing the feeling side of color, it can also communicate ideas. How do you think we as artists use the medium and language of color to create meaning? Well, I think artists are very, you know, artists are very involved with their sensibilities and those sensibilities have to do with, you know, their style of painting and their choice of imagery or, you know, whatever, however they make their work. And I, color is a big uh, part, you know, Color is also about sensibility and how an artist um, uh, works with it is, I think, you know, very personal. I think when artists, when I think when artists are very skilled at what they're doing and they're very good at their craft, I think uh, color can bring their their color can bring us into their way of seeing or their color world or whatever. I was actually thinking about the work of Peter Halley thinking about um color sensibility and um the the intensity of the color and the severity of it the boldness of it the it's big literally those paintings are big right so you're seeing like a big area of color it's it's a color experience that is um for its own reasons for the how that artist works with color immersive I think of it as very severe. I think of it as almost like undeniable color or something for me. I don't know if that's a great phrase to use, but something about it is, it's a it, his way of, it's just as an example of one artist, his way of working with color. I experience that as a whole color sensibility. That is a color world. That's a color experience. That really is like a poetic experience. I mean, there might be theories behind it. There might be, you know, aesthetic reasons but but for me as a viewer i i feel like that's uh it's kind of like going and listening to like loud music or something you know to put it to make a very general analogy so i think meaning is not always like oh red symbolizes love to this artist it's not always in that and that's a very language thing i think to kind of say color you know color this color means this color is symbolic in this way uh, which is a way color functions. But in terms of how artists work with it, um, I think that kind of visual poetry um, and the experience that for a viewer in that kind of visual poetry is really um, a big part of color and meaning in painting mm-hmm. and, and any kind of visual art, really. Yeah, I mean, I think what you bring up has to do with 
maybe separating the the simple and symbolic use of color versus the complex. And I think the complex poetic uses really lasts longer, even though so red and love are are connected in this very simple way. That sort of washes over us where when we get to see, you know, that physical response of Peter Halley's work and and how color works with size and scale and and things like that that all of those parts work together to build complex meaning mm -hmm. yeah well it, i think that there's util i mean color is utilitarian to some degree it, it, it you know the red light means stop right that's another symbol right another base color can be symbolic but uh but yeah and i think that happens in aesthetics as well uh in, in important ways but um something about meaning that is, you know, yeah, that kind of more uh, an experiential meaning, I think is kind of what what I'm getting at, um, what I'm trying to talk about. Uh, I think color as a subject in itself has been associated with the feminine. Those connections to color can be very powerful. And color is often associated with things like decoration, as we've talked about pleasure and joy, those subjects can sometimes be separated from conceptualism in, in maybe certain circles of art or certain perceptions of art and culture. How is using color a conceptual aspect of artwork? Well, I, I feel like I respond to the last question that you asked. So what do you, I want you to, what, what, do you have any thoughts about this, Lauren? I think about I, it. I'd, I'd be interested to hear from you, especially, you know, as a female artist, you know, um, you, you know, what you just said, associations with the color and the feminine. Um, what's your take on that? Either with your work or in general in painting? Sure. Um, I think about it a lot. I think a lot about pattern and and elements of craft that are more often associated with the feminine so i think about the bauhaus and um you know the bauhaus is this movement where all of the crafts and all of the fine arts were for the first time put together rather than in separate um guilds or things like that and it was meant to say everything is similar in value. There is not a hierarchy here. And yet when we look back at the Bauhaus, we can clearly see a hierarchy of architecture, sculpture, then painting, and further and further down are the majors or um, focuses that, that women were put into. So mostly like ceramics and, um, and fibers. So I think a lot about Annie Albers' work and, you know, she was really important in terms of thinking about black and white as well. So really interesting structure, but that that the use of color and the use of the feminine trades or crafts can be lumped together. And, and that is, um, is just something I think about often where it can be written off in certain ways, um, unless it's approached in a scientific way or unless it is put forth with a, a very tight kind of concept. Hmm. Well, I think about other books like Ornament and Crime, where um, Adolf Luce talks about how how problematic it is that that mosques might have all of these color and decorations in them, or um, and what the problems are with that, and how that is just a form of racism. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I think 
I think all of these histories, maybe it's not as overt or the first thing where someone says these things are bad, but it there are associations that seem to be embedded in our culture. Well, I think, yeah, this is interesting. Well, uh, you know, I have to go back to a, a, a book that I read when I was an undergrad a long, long time ago. I'm not going to say how many years ago, um, <laughs> but a long time ago called Chromophobia. If anyone hasn't read this book, it's a kind of, it's a classic. Um, and it's, it's interesting because he, he talks about, um, you know, how color is treated in, in mainstream culture as like an, a secondary quality of a thing right? That you, know, you have your, um, you know, uh, your primary form of a, of a whatever, and then there is color on top. And the fact that color is an add-on, it's an additive, it's an extra, it's a surface, it's a decorative, it kind of places it in, you know, a hierarchy um, that is uh, secondary or second class or whatever. So the primary importance of a Greek statue is its form, not its color, but of course, we know now that those things were painted. Um, but I, I think you know, it's it's an interesting question and idea about you know um, that this kind of hierarchy. And even in my work, I mean, I think about I do my drawing without color. You know, I, I when I plan a painting, I do the drawing in line without color to map it out, and that's the primary foundation of the thing, right? And then I add the color. So I, you know. Um, I, I do think that color is in, you know, it's like, it's a quality of a thing. You don't ever really have like color, um, existing without it being part of light or paint or fabric or this or that. Mm -hmm. It's always part of a thing. So I feel like that is kind of, I think that explains why it's, um, has almost like a hierarchical like secondariness about it um what do you think i mean i think that it connects color to all kinds of things to the way that it is used um maybe even the classroom i think of this where say some students or some some individuals think art, capital A, art looks a certain way. Does that look like a Rembrandt painting with a lot of browns, blacks, a little bit of red? Um, there's a taste issue there, I think. And to see really big, bold color can have, bring in issues of taste, issues of class, um, and, and maybe this idea of appropriateness. I've got a good example from one of my first museum trips in undergrad where I remember having this very strong reaction to Matisse's yellow odalisk being hung at the Philadelphia Museum of Art in between the two bathroom doors. <laughs> so there's this whole beautiful impressionist wing and and at the time they really did a bang up job of putting a lot of like Renoirs and Van Goghs in a way that that I think kind of made them seem very nice and very subtle but their color is pretty wild, really, if you let it be. Um, same thing for Monet and, and such. So they curated it in a way that, that then they just didn't seem to know what to do with this Matisse painting. It's got this lemon cadmium yellow with black stripes. It has um, this teal, like a cobaltish green and and I think it just didn't play nice with the rest of the work and, and the curators didn't know what to do with it. 
And really that was my first experience in a museum where I thought, oh, taste, class, and subjectivity are really a big part of how things get displayed too. And that mm. makes meaning. And, and that makes what? Meaning, I think. Mm -hmm. but yeah, I think uh, the painting that might, well, I guess, you know, I mean, my assumption would be that a curator would kind of, you know, be like, okay, what, how, how does this all work together? You know, and if something doesn't quote unquote work, whatever that means, maybe it looks too, it doesn't look good with the other things like that piece gets like uh, that, that painting, which might be like an amazing thing might not have the same um, platform, you know, as works that, um, yeah, might quote unquote work together, whatever that means. Um, but yeah, I think that like uh, color, um, I think it can definitely turn people off. <laughs> it can definitely make people say, oh, not that. That's too much with that. I mean, I just can't do it. And, you know, it's up to artists to like push those boundaries and kind of have fun with that. And, you know, I know I certainly do. <laughs> Absolutely. But I, I just want to ask Lauren, like, I'm curious, like, <clears throat> like when you were talking about like color as like a feminine aspect or whatever, do, do you have ideas about um, color as part of like the feminine domain or um, any ideas about that as like a cultural idea or like, how do you feel about that? Is that something you like play up in your work or what do you think? I think it's a question rather than something I have a, a definite answer on. I think there are histories, like even the idea that pink was once a color for boys because it was seen as a strong red, but made pale for, for babies. And then we see this entire shift over the last century where boys get blue rather than this um, strong sounding pink. And the, the powdery blues was often seen as a very soft feminine color. So the idea that color is gendered or can have these elements to them is, is always temporary and is always changing, I think. Yeah. Well, maybe one day we'll get to the mystery of why pink really is like kind of like the girl's color. I mean, I have friends who have raised, I don't have any children myself, but I, you know, have friends and relatives who've raised kids and they're like, I like girls and they're like, I never, I never <laughs> like push pink on them. They're just super into it. I don't, it just may, might come from certain clues that are in culture that are like everywhere, but it's definitely like a thing, you know, it's definitely like, it's such a powerful symbol of identity for a certain group of age of people. Yeah, absolutely. And almost like almost like alarmingly so. <laughs> I think we're seeing like a, a humorous um, resurfacing of this with the Barbie movie where it's sort of equal parts critical, but in just like loving it as well. Mm. Even, did you see the Barbie yeah, movie? Yeah, I... <laughs> I, I haven't seen it. I don't know if I, you know, I don't know if I want, I mean, not like I don't want to, I'm just not, I'm like, I feel neutral about Barbie, but, um, but you know, certainly pink's a big part of that world, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that there, you know, I wonder if 
I mean, that stuff's everywhere in our cult, like everywhere. You can't, you go to a drugstore, you know, and you see like a little, a toy section and it's loaded with pink toys for kids. You don't have to go to a toy store to see this stuff. So I think it's just like, um, I guess it's kind of everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's really an issue of training. So, you know, an exposure culturally and visually. And I think, you know, the way that we talked about sub subjectivity and color, um, and the way that it can be loud or quiet or um, subtle or really bold and in your face, I think it just has such a broad range as as a material of communication that that it can't really be owned by any gender. But at the same time, I think there's, I feel a certain agency in being able to use it and say, hey, this is really an exciting subject in and of itself, an exciting material in and of itself in order to combat some of those um things that get said about like the idea of the added color on top of a form color is form right and so i think culturally recognizing that can be really exciting yeah well that idea of color color is is a property of form right that's normally how it's thought about but it's true like an art there could be an artist who like takes blue paint and to them blue the blue paint is the form right and they're like they bypass this idea maybe somehow of drawing or you know working with color on an armature in that kind of more traditional way um and you know maybe like I mean I don't know what like Joan Mitchell's like theories about color were but like I think about like maybe an artist like that could be almost like a color as you know the yellow is you know, it is just the yellow is the form, you know, it's, it, it you know, like very direct use of color. Like may, maybe that's kind of, uh, you know, works with that thought thread. I, I just wanted to like, um, I know we're going to go on to the color in, in the classroom section, and I definitely have things I want to talk about that. But I just wanted to say first, you know, I, I think the idea of color and subjectivity is um, important to talk about. And I think it's important to acknowledge like the, cause you know, we can say color is subjective, you know, you like this, I like that. We can, you know, that's fine to say that, but you know, to just go a little deeper with that, like, you know, color, there are so many different subjectivities, you know, there's not just taste and preference, but there's also, there's memory, you know, if you believe in, you know, the idea of what, what do they say, like imprinting or something, you know, that when you're young, you're imprinted with certain impressions, those stay with you, they shape you. I mean, I guess this is like psychoanalysis or whatever. Um, you know, we all care, we all carry those. I've had early memories of the colors of the walls of my grandparents' home. I mean, those are, you know, uh, stick with me, you know, they, they, they have influenced my work and the way I work with color. Um, my grandmother loved pink and aqua together. Those were her, like, <laughs> she was probably decorating in like the sixties or something, seventies and those, you know, but anyway, but that's my personal thing. But so there's memory and this imprinting thing, but there's also taste and your sensibility. Right. Uh, and there is uh, memories, you know, how someone remembers a thing might be different than how another person remembers it. Um, and there's cultural, you know, I, you know, I grew up as a blank person. This is part of my, you know, my, my national colors are this, or my you know, heritage is this. Some people see color as attached to those aspects. So um, it, it's really profound, just the, the kind of amount of subjectivity that kind of plays, plays into color.
Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, I think it is a good time to jump into color in the classroom. Why don't we talk about goals in teaching color? I think acknowledging those subjective elements, how it can be used symbolically, how it can be used poetically are part of that. What else do you think? Well, for goals for teaching color, one of the primary goals to like, it's like for, for me for teaching color is to like, um, you know, to, to not like, it's almost like a doctor, like you don't want to harm anyone. You know, the first step, the first thing you do is you don't cause more pain or distress, right? So it's sort of like, you know, you, you want to make sure that people have the um, space to work with color in a free way that they can hold their honor, their associations and honor their subjectivities and, and, you know, in an okay way, you know, and I think that's kind of part of like, um, you know, setting the tone for teaching color. I guess that's a goal is to have people leave and have it be a healthy experience, a constructive experience. But to, to very, put it very crudely and bluntly about like what I think the goal of teaching color is, I think a lot of teaching color is so people learn about more colors. And I think that color is so infinite. And there are, as you know, millions or thousands or however, just many, many, many colors are existing. And um, I think a lot of, uh, I notice a lot of students, I don't think they they know about a particular type of dark blue green or a particular type of purple reddish you know whatever i think you have to work with color a lot to learn about the range of colors and to really understand like what's what what is between those you know in all those kind of um in the color matrix right that that really is the the, the all the potential uh color possibilities that you have, whether you're painting or digital or whatever. Um, so all these exercises that we might do with Albers or Itin or, you know, looking at the Munsell thing or whatever, I think the end goal is to really like, so people build color vocabulary. So then whatever field they're going into, whether they're painting or web design or fashion design or whatever, they can really, um, when they're composing, they can, I can make this work because I know about enough colors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think being aware of all of those things makes the classroom a great place to to share that kind of content. Um, I have an, a journal that I ask students to do. Uh, are you familiar with Cabinet Magazine? I don't know that it's still. In uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I am. I know Cabinet Magazine. They had a really. Are, are great they still? Are is Cabinet still existing, or did that? I don't think so. I have them all digitally, and every every magazine had a color section in it. So they would have pink written by David Byrne or um, Porphyry or Indigo and different artists and professionals of like in the design realm or art realm would, would write specifically about a color. And it can be poetic, it can be very straightforward. And something that I love seeing students do in class is write their own responses to those very particular colors, their histories, whether that comes from pigment or whether it comes from um, a cultural lens. And getting everybody to share that together can be so exciting. And I think it, it helps make the vastness of color feel both vast, but also accessible you know, just by giving their experience credit or, um, you know, seeing how somebody else wrote about the same color, you had a completely different experience with it. 
Yeah, I think that does get at the vastness of it. Because what you're doing is you're also kind of saying like, this is the vastness of color, but then this is also the vastness of memory, of imagination, of of poetry, whatever. Um, I think that's a really, really amazing uh, way to do that. Um, so in Cabinet, they... So so when there's the color section, like the writer just writes on a color, whatever they want to write. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Exactly. Or like sulfur, where we associate the scent with the um, with the color itself. So that color might look beautiful. But if we think about the material, it gets kind of gross. <laughs> mm -hmm. so it's really it's a good series. Um, yeah, I just wanted to talk about like just, you know, because this is a, you know, a, a CAA podcast and, you know, a lot of folks will be, you know, teachers, educators themselves. I just wanted to share something that I felt was like, I feel really compelled to like, um, uh, share with, uh, with, about how I teach color theory. And I did recently write a book, um, called color theory for dummies, which is, uh, uh an official dummies publication uh, published by Wiley. Um, and the book, you know, re really condenses a lot of color theory uh, from Albers, from Itten, uh, different color systems into a very, you know, Dummies books are known to be very um, uh, accessible. And I made this, you know, made it very accessible. So it's very readable. And it, I, I really wrote it with teachers in mind, because I thought, you know, I remember when I was, I was handed a color theory class when I was 27 or whatever. And I thought, well, I did take color theory, but I don't really, I don't know how to teach it really. And I kind of had to like, just kind of make quick work of like coming up with a curriculum and a book like this is really great for folks who um, might just be jumping into teaching color theory, even if they did take it as an undergrad to kind of like just round it out and give a little more information. Anyway, uh, when I was writing the book, you know, it really made me think, you know, what what kind of information do I have to give people up front when they study color? And uh, what do I have to watch out for? What do people need to know before they venture into it? And I think, you know, given uh, subjectivities and uh, the kind of complexities of how we all see color differently, um, the idea of color vision deficiency came up in my mind as like a really, uh, you know, something to really talk about at the beginning of the book, because um, that's color division deficiency is a way in which we like biologically see colors differently, right? So uh, a person with red green colorblindness might see, you know, different degrees of dulling of those colors based on how severe the you know their color vision deficiency is. Um, so we oftentimes seeing color color is like a fact, right? We see you know, the stop sign is red, the grass is green. How can you refute these things? Uh, where we actually, you kind of can, because some people might just not be seeing those colors. And I think that, um, you know, I'm, I I don't have a color vision deficiency, but I think it, I, it might be alienating to me if I, I were in a room and everyone was like, well, can't you see that this is this? Can't you understand this fact? Um, so I think it's really important to bring up that color vision deficiency. And even if some, even if no one in the room has that, uh, it's still a great way to emphasize the point that, you know, color vision is subjective, even if it's not a biological subjectivity, it, it you know, there's other, other forms. So I just think that's, uh, if there's anything, any just like tip I want to give out to the, to the crowd here I think that's a great way to um it, it, uh, begin a color class nice I think that's so helpful I mean also some of those students might not come forth with that information in the beginning unless you present it as such um, so that can be very helpful to invite people in well what about I mean thinking about color in the classroom 
I think everyone's aware of the phenomena of the blue or black dress, blue, black, white, gold. Would you <laughs> tell us a little bit about this controversy and settle it once and for all? <laughs> I will. Well, I'm happy to. Um, I did write about this in my book and it's a fun example to bring up in the classroom uh, because, well, I think it was a very fun kind of little cultural moment that we had back 10 years ago, whenever this happened. Um, you know, it was fun. It was a very lighthearted news segment. And um, it seemed, to, you know, it was kind of playful because it, people disagreed, but it, it was all kind of just about color. So it wasn't anything too heated, but, you know, as, excuse me, as you all know, there was a photograph of a dress. This was photographed by a Scottish woman in 2015 uh, named Celia Bleasdale. Um, she took a, a photo of a dress uh, hanging on a hanger at a department store. The dress is uh, black and blue uh, in reality, but uh, and it appeared that way, I think, she said it appeared that way to her in the photo, but then she texted the photo to other family members and they're like, oh, I think it looks to me, it looks like white and gold. It doesn't look, you know, blue or black. And then it kind of became a little fun controversy among her family. And then they shared it with others. And then before you know it, it became this internet meme. And, you know, you had like, you know, Beyonce weighing in. I don't know if she really did, but people like that saying like, I think this is what I think. So um, the mystery of the dress, uh, in, in my research, the best kind of uh, explanation I could find that made sense to me was that the dress, uh, the mystery of the dress can be solved by a concept called color constancy. And color constancy is the brain's ability to know that the color of an object remains the same, uh, even if it's seen under different lighting conditions. And there's a great example online of this, of uh, strawberries. If you Google um, color constancy strawberries, um, there's a, a photograph of a bowl of strawberries. They look red, but there's actually no red pixels in the image. That's because our brains kind of fill in the red because we know that those things are red, right? So um, again, you know, it's it's kind of the brain's ability to kind of like fill in the color uh, and we, we know a color stays the same. We might eat the strawberries in, in dim light. We know that they're ripe, even though, you know, um, we can't see the, the pure red. Um, so uh, the thing is the dress was photographed um, with a shaky camera phone in, uh, you know, bad, quote unquote, bad lighting. So um, basically what you can, you know, you have um, different light temperatures, right? So there's warm light and there's cool light. Uh, if the if the light is warm, very yellow based, it can kind of change the colors and make them seem warmer. If the light is very blue based, very cool, it can make the colors feel cooler. So uh, the fact that we, you know, with the strawberry example, we all know strawberries are red in our brain. The dress, we didn't know originally what those color that object was. So it's slipperier in terms of like what, how our brains might compensate or might understand that object that we have no memory of. Um, there is basically the, the, the dress was photographed with under a warm light. Uh, that warm light kind of made the blue look kind of whiter and the black look kind of weirdly golder. And that's why that dress took on a cast of those colors. In my book, there's a really great, in Color Theory for Dummies, my book, there's a really great illustration showing how those uh, color temperatures could affect 
the colors of a single object and make a blue thing look like a white thing, right? A blue thing under warm light look like a white thing under cool light. Um, so that is basically how uh, the mystery of the dress could be addressed. <laughs> nice wordplay. I think that has, you know, while just about color started some maybe deeper friend disagreements at the time, <laughs> got very heated. Well, I, again, I love that it brought up this idea of like how we see color as a fact. Like, can't you see? It's so obvious that that is the truth. And you know, it, it brings up this whole issue of like, oh, actually, it's it's tremendously subjective. And, you know, we think about what we see as being true, but it might because color vision is so um, so personal, you know, and we all have different ways of seeing. Mm -hmm. It really yeah. brought that to to you know such a wonderful uh, high, you know, such a wonderful uh, dramatic kind of effect. So I and I love showing that in the classroom because people also usually know it, but then kind of don't know it too, and they they kind of enjoy like yeah the extra explanation of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it, the the idea of perception, we're so aware of the fact that it works, that it is some kind of illusion or play on the eyes, but we don't always dig into the nitty gritty of it. And I think that's a good jump into how how color can transcend into other aspects of life and industry. It's not it's not necessarily just for painters. I think you know we look at screens all day. Could you talk a little bit about some of the challenges or um, benefits of talking about how color works in this, in, in light versus in something like physical material like paint? Yeah, well, this is a very important question. And, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled that people still want to study color theory with pieces of paper and not do it only digitally, because uh, I think there is definitely like a value of doing it with uh, pieces of paper because you don't have the variable of people's different monitors and other variables as well. But I, I want to say that during the pandemic, I taught color theory online and you know, that was like a moment. Did, did you teach it online then, Lauren? Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, so you're probably in the same boat of like, how the hell do I do this? This is going <laughs> to be like, you know, a total shift. And, you know, I actually, you know, thought about it as a way, you know, to kind of address the, the digital reality and kind of talk about digital as a, a, a moderating, mediating factor in our communication and how that always changes things. So like, there was a big conversation about how I did have people photograph their paper studies. And then it was all about how does the photography change the colors? How does your monitor changing the colors? Let's try to make sure everyone's monitor is turned up to the brightest it can be. So everyone knows that they're looking at things maximum brightness of what they can look at. What is the lighting in your environment? Are you under cool uh, fluorescent lights? Are you under warm incandescent light? Are you under daylight? Those are all going to shape how you see color. You know, I, I think it's not so much about like what's best for color or not best for color. It's just kind of like, kind of saying like, okay, these are the differences and the different things you're dealing with. I will say when you work with a piece of paper that is colorful, like a piece of colory paper, or you mix a color on your palette, you have a different physical relationship to that color than if you're like online picking it on like the color picker thing. 
that color exists in a physical way in your life in a different way. And um, again, it's not that it's better or worse. It's just for whatever reason, it's different, you know? And I, I, I think that um, I know I feel a connection to color when I have it as a physical reality in my life, when I'm mixing paint again, I'm like that for me feels real in a way that digital doesn't. I mean, I think the the other thing with digital is, you know, it's always backlit, Mm -hmm. you know, one of the most alluring things about the devices is just how juicy and bright and alive the colors are, you know, use, I think it's important to uh, bring that up too, just that, you know, it's not just color. You're also dealing with lightness and brightness on a monitor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, even thinking about how our projectors work, whether we're watching a movie or presenting in the classroom, thinking about how, I guess it's red, green, and blue light on a projector, how the more color or the more light there is, the whiter it gets, where a student might be mixing those same colors on their palette and it's like a brown-black mess, right? So even thinking about just the the inversion of how the colors mix together and what happens there is is an interesting phenomenon i think yeah like in in mixing of light yellow um yellow is made with green and red mm-hmm. um so like yeah even to know that like oh like you know when i mix that in my paint i get brown or whatever so i feel like yeah like understanding like how light mixes as opposed to like substance um I also I you know I usually always go over that and usually it doesn't have any I can't see it having any practical implication like in my classes but again I think it's just kind of like gives a well-rounded knowledge of how color works Mm -hmm. sure I'm curious I want to talk about pigments with you especially since you did the golden residency and I want to um I'm curious what your thoughts are about how the pigments in paint translate into color and how that might affect your work with color. Sure. Color really is a material, right? So if you're using the same color in watercolor versus acrylic versus oil, it may it may have a totally different um, feeling to it. So seeing those pigments that that are heavy or come from heavy metals might might do something totally different than than if if they were more luminous or translucent. So I think making choices about color pigment has a lot to do with with weight and gravity in a painting just as much as the thickness of the paint or um, maybe the quantity of the color or or structure. Wait, are you do you mean are you talking about like um how certain pigments are more opaque or for example, how certain pigments are more opaque or less opaque than others? Sometimes I think it's, it has to do with their materiality. Like cadmiums are, are typically some of the most opaque colors of, you know, whether it's red, yellow, et cetera. But then we have, I think it's golden's color, like benzamidazolone yellow. And that one, you might see the mass tone of the color. So if you squeeze them out, the mass tone would be that opaque pile of color. And then you start spreading it out. And as you spread that paint out, it may have a completely different feeling or quality to it, even though it appears to be the same kind of color. And Mm. so I think that that has so much to do with, with pigment, with what it's made out of. Totally. That's so interesting. That's very interesting stuff. And I think this is really important for like, when you, for students, because 
they might think, oh, yellow's yellow. This yellow looks the same as this yellow. But yeah, but when you start painting with it, it's a totally different ballgame because one will cover in a way that another one won't or whatever. And yeah, I think that like that's learning. That's that's learning about paint is le- learning about pigments and what they can do. And absolutely, that's super interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's so many like- new pigments. You know, I think as industries try to move away from things that, that are bad for us or that are bad to be mined and we come up with these scientific kinds of pigments it, it's exciting to see what they're doing something completely different from what what the traditional pigments did mm, yeah well you know I, those cadmiums are just so i know i love those cadmium colors they are just there's like nothing like those things and even though they do the cadmium you know it looks like cadmium or something it's just not yeah. <laughs> those, those darn things are so nice but yeah there it's true this stuff is bad and maybe we'll eventually be phased out um but you know also lauren i you know i just wanted to bring up this thing of like just because a pigment is transparent doesn't mean it's like low quality right like it just means that's the nature of it so something that is a very like you know maybe not a very powerful pigment could be desirable if you're doing like glazing or you want transparency in the paint yeah absolutely I think it it totally depends on that feeling that you're aiming for and whether you want that luminosity of you know glazing is such an exciting subject in painting because you can achieve colors I suppose it's more like an optical mixture where you're you're layering you know say a blue with a violet on top and that creates a completely different color than if you mix those two colors on your palette because you have this these translucent layers in between yeah 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 physically different totally that that is a very that makes it even more vast when you get into like yeah you think about like mixing paint on a palette you mix this you make this this is what you get it's like you're there's all these factors that are still missing you know there's like transparency layering how how thick it's layered what tools are using to layer like that also I can't, I can't think of it off the top of my head, but I know that there's certain things that I can do with like overlays of color where I'm like, yeah, I can never get that color when I'm mixing paint. It has to be some sort of overlay. Can you think of an example of anything like that? Sure. I, I don't personally do a ton of glazing in my work, but when I see it, it's so exciting. I mean, I think even I mentioned Renoir earlier he's such a good glazer where, you know, you're far away and you see these really vivid colors and then you get up close and there's, it's sort of a hot mess of all these different tiny bits of color. Mm. And it's amazing how that changes with your, your physical distance from the painting. And it's amazing how that sort of all comes together in a certain, in a certain space from the painting too. Yeah. It's kind of a moment where like you're, yeah, your uh, physical position is engaged with painting. You know, we think of paintings as just, oh, they're just on the wall. You stand three feet away and look, but actually no, like it's a very different experience, 20 feet versus as close as you can get. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love well, that. Like, You do so much with optical mixtures that, that maybe connects to ideas about pointillism, but com- in your own world. I think you are a master of these dots and stripes and and how they do come together and shift with distance. Can you talk about that a little bit in your own well, work? 
Thank you, Lauren. I'm glad you appreciate that part of my work because I, I, um, well, I guess, you know, because I think a lot about like, why is painting important now? Because we live in a culture of, you know, things are so digital and like there's moving images and there's so many things you, so many different directions you could go, you know, why, why, why would painting be, you know, still relevant? And I think, you know, one of the ironies of like, paintings relevance now, which I think no one's even really talking about that this much these days. Everyone's just like, yeah, painting's fine. Painting's totally relevant. But the irony is that what we're looking at mostly is like digital images of paintings. We're not even looking at real paintings mostly, you know? So I feel compelled to engage, um, you know, the surfaces and the textures and the physical qualities of the painting. And even, you know, you just said, oh, dot, you know, dots and the stripes which, you know, are certainly those things in life. They're very, you know, you can see the surfaces are very raised and they're very textured. And people often say when they haven't seen my work before and they see it in real life, they say, oh, I'm so surprised at how, you know, how textural this work is. And that is, um, I guess it's my kind of desire to say like this thing has to be seen in real life to really understand what it is. And, you know, you can look at a digital image of it, but that's a secondary thing. And I think that if we, I guess it's my historical moment or what I want out of painting or how I want to be an artist that makes me feel like I want to make a case for painting to have it be a physical experience that needs to be seen in the flesh, in real life by a human, you know? And I don't know, historically, is that is that a good position to take? I don't know, <laughs> but that's what I want to do. And um, that's why I push those aspects of my work. I just think it's so ironic that we we make one set of images as paintings and then we make another set of digital images. And that's what we, that's what circulates, you know, and oftentimes like that's how people are experiencing what we are doing, which I think is just another part of like contemporary life. I somehow feel like, I don't know, like there's a primary experience that is that, that can't be a digital experience that needs to be Part of it. And I think a lot of contemporary painters are doing the same thing. I mean, Lauren, your, your work is the same, it's the same similar thing, right? I mean, you're, you're, you're working with this juicy oil paint. It's put on brushwork is so super huge with your work. I mean, you're really pushing those aspects of your work. What do you think about that stuff? Or like digital, you know, your, your paintings existing as uh, primary things, um, that whether they're how they're the document of which is a secondary. Do you think about it that way? I think as you're saying, it's sort of folded into our experience at this point. But what what I find so exciting and what I found exciting during the pandemic is that students in my classes were all, you know, we're meeting on Zoom, but but there was this feeling of needing to do something physical and I think that that there is something about that that we get out of experiencing artwork in person seeing things in the real in three dimensions and being able to maybe understand the tactility about work um, that we can't online and I think there was a real desire for that in all of my zoom classes during that time period and it's something I think about in the studio too where maybe it's not so much about thinking about somebody's experience of the work, but but because I'm so excited about the, the materiality of color and paint and brushwork that I hope that excitement transforms or like occurs in the viewing of the work as well. 
Mm-hmm. Well, b- brushes, I think, is a brushwork and brushes in the world of what a brush can do, but brushes can do like that to me is very like, cause that's like ancient technology actually, you know, and, and we're still working with that, those technology, those, those ancient technologies to make images. And I, you know, I often think that there's something in the stroke of the brush mm-hmm. that is a, a residue of a movement of a hand that is like a fingerprint, you know, mm-hmm. like Absolutely. it's such a, it, it's such a singular thing. And it's, it's such a simple thing. It's just a person with holding something in their hand, yet it does have this kind of like, it, I almost say magical. Cause I can't quite put my, or mysterious maybe is a better word. Like why, why does this convey this weird kind of essence to me right now? Like what about it? And I, I try to think maybe it's like the mystique of, you know, the mystique surrounding this thing, you know, strip away. I mean, in my own head, I'm playing this thing of like strip away all that shit and just try to like, look at, see if this is really giving that essence or whatever. And I feel like it kind of just, it does, you know, it's almost like looking at a signature. You kind of feel like the person's there. It just really feel, it rings true, you know? Yeah. There's an energy to it. And I mean, those things go along with color in such an important way because some colors allow you to see that energy differently than others. Or Mm -hmm. if the stroke is something where you can see the fibers of the brush or whatever tool somebody is using, or if it's just totally flat color and, and that is its own experience too. So I think, I think touch and tools and, and that kind of application can't really be seen separate from color. Mm-hmm. Well, I love that, you know, artists like, like you and our, our continue to not still, but continue, you know, I almost said that about myself too. I'm still, I'm still doing it. I'm still painting, but no, continuing to paint and continuing to like be committed to uh, tactile kinds of forms. And, you know, I teach color theory. I teach like, you know, continuing education, color theory. And there are like, you know, people who grew up with digital in these classes and they're like, I want to take a class where I cut a paper and glue it down. That's just exciting to me right now. And people, humans need this kind of tactile thing. Um, and it's, and it's, you know, it's not either, or, you know, it's part of a whole, you know, a whole experience that we're having now with um, media. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I but, uh, but I wanted to ask before we move on to, to the next part or before we get too far ahead, you are a master of, of pattern, you know, and I think you have such a way with uh, pattern in your work. And I'm curious if you could talk about uh, how you see color and pattern meshing uh, in your painting. Oh, I think that's a great question. Um, I mean, I'm, I make still life. So I set them up physically. I choose fabrics and objects and flowers, of course. And and so I organize my composition by organizing my my still life. And what patterns are so helpful for creating a sense of rhythm because we have repetition of the size of an amount of color and the gesture of the amount of color. Sometimes it's really organic. Sometimes it's more graphic or or hard edged or um, things like that. And I, I think those elements really communicate well with how I paint. And then I really like disrupting those patterns. So if I have, say, a tablecloth that is floral with uh, with a, an actual flower arrangement on top, I get to break up that regularity with other formal elements too. 
I also, Eric, did you know that I, I think my first job out of grad school was working for a workshop where we made curtains. So we mm. would make curtains and soft upholstery. And I just was exposed to so many ideas about craft and quilting and really beautifully made fabrics. And myself and a few other women would sit around and hand sew and construct these elements for our work. And and I think that that experience having to do with craft and pattern and and maybe just women's work really affects the way that that I put that stuff together in my my work as well Mm -hmm. well one thing I noticed like among like how you work with pattern among like a group of your paintings is like I see very like I see like simple geometric pattern like checkers and then I see things that are like much more um I don't know what you'd say, like Baroque or something, right? Like things that are very floral and very kind of meandering lines. And I think um, one thing that's really beautiful about your work with pattern is like some are very small and some are very big. Like I see like little tiny checkers and then I see bigger, bolder kind of patterns. And I think part of um, what's so beautiful about how you work with pattern is like the range of scales and sizes and kind of the diversity of different patterns. But pattern, it's so interesting because it's like color can get um, folded into the pattern in a way. So it's kind of like um, it breaks color up more than if it were a solid area, you know, and I think that breaking up is a very rhythmic and also like just like scintillating or something, you know, it's kind of very intricate. It's scintillating. A lot of visual spaces to get involved in mm-hmm. has a lot of visual interest yeah I mean I also you bringing that up makes me think about the fact that I really don't use atmospheric perspective in color and so pattern and overlap and disruption are are ways that I hint at space within my paintings but there's so much about the the flatness of the surface that that I'm giving you a little space, but I'm also not letting you have a, an extreme depth of space, like like a landscape. I don't know. I think you do some similar things with color. You're, since your paintings are so surface focused, what do you think about those ideas of atmospheric perspective or? Um... Well, I love creating like a uh, space in my work. And I do a lot of like blending with color to, you know, suggest a deeper space. I like using, sometimes I use dull colors or light colors to kind of evoke space. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I like, like, I wouldn't call my work landscape per se, but there's like landscape elements to it in terms of there being a ground and a sky kind of element. And I, you know, I like to play with those like conventions Mm-hmm. and kind of yeah rework them I also I'm also into like the weight of color and how uh you know I I mean it, it is said and I tend to see as heavy colors as weighing more and kind of adding adding gravity and lighter colors as adding uh you know lightness and I enjoy those ideas nice yeah same here I think yeah there's something that can be so exciting to look at when your eye bounces around a painting in just the right way. Mm-hmm. Think about that a lot in terms of movement, whether that's sort of movement in and out of the, the depth of the painting or around the rectangle or whatever shape the painting is. 
Well, Eric, as we start to wind it down, maybe we could talk about some book recommendations for anyone listening. You mentioned Chromophobia earlier, and of course we have your Color for Dummies book. Are there other color books that you're excited about? Well, um, yeah, definitely Color Theory for Dummies is really great. You should get that. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I have a few uh, that, well, specifically books that I bought to get to research for my book. Uh, one is called Werner's Nomenclature of Colors. Um, this is a book, um, it's kind of like an early color system. Uh, it was made in, uh, I believe it was made in Edinburgh, Scotland in the early 19th century. And it was uh, one of the first attempts to standardize color. So there's like different chapters for like different blacks and different blues and different purples and greens, blah, blah, blah. And they're named according to um they, they are categorized, they're named and they're categorized in terms of what animal, vegetable, and mineral uh, is that color. What's so fascinating to look, to, it's fascinating to, to look at it, uh, to think about how vast our color systems are now and how at one time they were not vast. That at one time, a book that was, you know, 80, 50 pages long, 50 pages uh, could have been thought of as a comprehensive color system was, you know, it's kind of eye-opening in terms of just like where we are with color culturally and how fast color is in our industrial age where like tons of colors can be made synthetically. You know, it's, a, we live in a very specific world of, of very vivid, cheap, uh, bright color. Uh, that's all around us. So kind of an interesting walk back in history to look at something like Werner's nomenclature of color and kind of even begin to imagine what it would have been like to um, see more limited color or just natural color. Another one that I really enjoyed uh, in researching my book was uh, The Secret Lives of Color by, uh, I think it's Cassia St. Clair or Kasha, I'm not sure how to pronounce uh, the author's name correctly, but uh, you'll find it online if you look. Um, and this has um, stories about different colors. Um, it's kind of a, um, yeah, it's categorized by color. So all the reds are in one chapter, greens in another, blah, blah, blah. And there's uh, beautiful, fascinating stories about each kind of color. Nice. Those are great suggestions. I love that. Yeah. I do want to say, um, just in terms of color theory for dummies, um, I did include um, for the last chapter uh, interviews with 10 professionals in different fields and uh, interviewed them about their work with color. So in addition to like, you know, color theory stuff about like Albers, Itin, uh, color systems, color materials, um, there's also these uh, chapters about, um, yeah, different people. So including um, the interior designer, Jamie Drake, um uh, Latrice Eisman, uh, who is a color specialist with Pantone. Nice. I think you have a chef in there too, or somebody that does something with food as well. Uh yeah, uh Fanny Singer uh is a food aficionado. Um she is an expert on food and has a, some interesting, really interesting things to say about um, how food, uh, color and food expresses biodiversity. And, you know, you're always told, to, you know, when you go to the grocery store or buy, you know, a red thing, a yellow thing, a green thing, a purple thing, a blah, 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 orange thing. And it's true that that reflects, you know, um, you know, biodiversity and nutrients and um, the quality of color in ingredients uh, reflects the nutrition and health of soil, for example. So she has 
some interesting things to say about that. Uh, a gardener named uh, Jay Jones, a hairdresser named Aura Friedman, who is uh, has interesting things to say about uh, working with color and hair dye. So those are uh, kind of some different angles. I wanted to make the book kind of, you know, not just for art, for artists, you know, I wanted to make it for all kinds of people, anyone who is interested in color. So um, that has some interesting um, interviews in there as well as um, the content about color theory. Nice. And then how about a last question of what is your favorite color? Well, uh... (laughs) (laughs) it's hard to pick one. Well, what's yours, Lauren? You go first this time. To bring it back to my own work, this year I have been obsessed with cobalt blues. Mm. So there's a variety of them, like cobalt, teal, bluish, or, you know, just this range. But I just love the cobalt blue colors. Mm. Yeah, that's a particularly beautiful color. Well, I love orange. Orange is my favorite color. And I like just like a medium orange right in the middle of red and yellow like a true pure orange and um, I think what I like about it is just the warmth of it and the vividness of it and um, you know red is kind of darker yellow is kind of too shrill it kind of has a great combination of the warms with being uh, kind of yeah in between those two others that I don't necessarily love so much so Orange is my favorite. But Lauren, we should also, um, you know, tell the listeners, you know, that just in addition to being, you know, color people and interested in color and, you know, uh, colleagues, right? In addition to being colorful colleagues, <laughs> we are also flower friends. Oh, I love all of the alliteration here. Yes. <laughs> I mean, just express to the listeners how serious this is. You and I have a text thread of flowers we see throughout the year. We've been doing this for at least two years now. At least two years. We have this is taking up major data on my devices. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Lauren is an extremely talented gardener. I'm kind of just, you know, getting my, yeah, I'm learning, I'm a learning gardener and, uh, we share what we grow and we share other flowers that we might see in other places. And it's so cool to have a flower friend and just get a text message here and there about with some like cool looking flower in the message. Absolutely. And as you know, right now it's Dahlia season, so the pictures will be flying in your message box. Soon. I can't wait. <laughs> I can't wait. Oh, well, thank you so much, Eric, for joining me for the CAA Conversations podcast. And thank you, everyone, for listening to our discussion on color. To see more about the podcast, you can check the show notes where we'll have our bios and some more information. Thank you all so much. Thank you.